0: Well, as we come to God's word this morning, we ask for the Lord's assistance. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, you who dwell in inapproachable light, we thank you that we can come before you in the name of Jesus, that the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all sin, and therefore we have fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. We ask as we approach your word to study it, to mine its depths that you would please open our minds by the power of your spirit to illumine your truths to us that we may not be exposed to the riches of your truth and be unchanged. Father, pierce us where we need to pierce. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Teach us where we are untaught. And may we leave from here with a renewed resolve to live lives for the glory of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in recent years, maybe you've uh, noticed this, those of you that spend time on computers online or whatever, this rise of these online services that offer courses, such as uh, Masterclass or lynda.com or uh, The Great Courses. Maybe in times past you ordered The Great Courses DVDs. These are uh, services that people can subscribe to in order to learn from experts. And the appeal is that you can sit at the feet, you can learn from those who know their material the best, those who have uh, are experts in their field. They have experience in this realm, they uh, have the greatest knowledge in this particular area, and you, for a small fee, can take this course and learn from them and be able to hopefully be able to know and to be able to live in that uh have those skills as that great master does as well well as it comes to the matter of prayer we have no greater expert to learn from than from jesus christ himself as we'll see in our text today we need to sit into Jesus' masterclass on prayer. He is truly an expert in this field. He has the experience and the knowledge from which we can glean. And the author of this book, Luke, uh, knows that, which is why he recorded it for us so that generations of Christians can take this class over and over again, and we need to take it again as well. And so I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word, if you're not there already, to the book of Luke, chapter 11. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Last week, we saw that the posture of a disciple, through the example of Mary, was one who sat at Jesus' feet. The the story of Martha and Mary and Martha busying herself, and Jesus exhorts Martha and says, listen, Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion. She has chosen chosen to sit at my feet and to be a disciple of mine and to learn from me. And so Luke, coming off of that example, then sits us all at Jesus' feet, as it were, so that we might learn a lesson from the master himself on prayer. Sitting in Christ's school of prayer is a perennial need. We can never say that we've mastered the coursework, can we? All true believers pray... But it's not true that all believers pray well. As we all know individually, our prayer life can be plagued by all sorts of diseases. Can be stum- we can get stumbled on so many, so many stumbling blocks, such as selfishness. Selfishness. We can be, come to prayer and be thinking more about ourselves than we are about God, or think more about ourselves than we are about others. We can be plagued with flippancy, in which we bow in prayer and we forget the very one that we're addressing. Our prayer life can be plagued with irregularity, it becomes infrequent. We throw up a prayer here and, and cast a prayer there, but we, there's no regularity in our asking. Our prayer can be plagued with doubt and hesitancy. We wonder whether God really cares. Or should we really bother God with this need? I mean, he's, he's busy taking care of the needs of the world, billions of people. Can you really be bothered with my cares? Or can also, our prayer can also be plagued with theological questions, get hampered with the reality that God's sovereign. And so if he's sovereign and he's already predetermined all things, then why should I even pray? What is my prayer going to do? In the course of my life or someone else's life or frankly our prayers can simply be plagued and and we can get stumbled up with our own guilt we have a deep sense of our own guiltiness before the Lord we know that we've sinned and so we question I've sinned too much can I even approach God I feel dirty I I don't feel like I can actually come to him and ask him of things because he's just sitting there with his arms crossed all disappointed with me Have one of these diseases plagued your prayer life at one time or another? Because they can waylay even the best of saints. And so we need to know how to remedy these and how to get past these stumbling blocks. And so we need to be reminded of what Jesus says about the what, the why, and the how of prayer. And we'll see that in our passage. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 11. We'll read the first 11 verses of this chapter. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For whoever, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks, For a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? A sweet passage full of great teaching on prayer, and so it's in these verses that we are going to see Jesus teaches that if we want to experience prayer as he does, if we want to follow in his footsteps in prayer, our prayer should possess three primary qualities. Three primary qualities that our prayer should be characterized by if we want to experience prayer as he does. This morning, we will only have time to examine the first quality and we'll reserve the final two for next week. And so this morning we're going to see the first quality that Jesus says should characterize our prayer and that is that it should be biblical. Our prayer should be biblical and we'll see this in verses 1 through 4. And the reason this exhortation is so important for us is that it's easy for us to rush into prayer and yet to do so inappropriately. You might think of the scene of a king sitting upon his throne and, and someone who's, who simply rushes into the throne room past the guards with no regard of who he's addressing and simply starts babbling at the mouth and everyone around is going, do you understand there's a proper way to do this? Do you understand that there's certain things that you trouble the king with and there's certain things that you don't? There's a certain way that you address them, a certain way that you bring your requests It's maybe not so much in what you're asking, but how you're asking it, in things such as these. And so if we, friends, are simply driven by our own desires, if we come into prayer simply following our heart, it's very possible that we could pray wrongly, inadvertently. We could be headed in the wrong direction. And so one of the ways that we can pray rightly is that we align our requests with God's will. And if we're going to align our request with God's will, that means we're going to be praying biblically, according to his revealed word. And that's exactly what Jesus helps us to do in these first four verses. Look at verse one with me. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he, he was praying in a certain place. This passage begins with Jesus praying. Now we don't know where or when, precisely, And for Luke, these details are not important, but rather he wants us, he wants to highlight yet again that Jesus is praying. Luke has already noted that Jesus has prayed on several occasions. And if you've been with us through our journey through the gospel of Luke, we've highlighted these as we've gone along. Even at his baptism, it says that he came up out of the waters and he was praying, unique to, to Luke. Luke 5:16 says he would he would, draw, uh, he would withdraw to desolate places and to pray. Luke 6:12 it says, "In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God." This is the night before he chose his disciples, the twelve apostles. And then in Luke nine. Verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray, thus setting the scene for the transfiguration. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, notes how often Jesus was praying. And this account before us in Luke 11 is no different. And so when we find Jesus praying yet again in Luke 11, 1, it's not surprising But it is remarkable still. The fact that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who enjoyed fellowship with God the Father for all of eternity previous to this point, and yet he is setting aside time to pray. Setting aside time to commune with his Father in heaven. It is remarkable. Can you imagine listening to that prayer? Being a bystander, a fly on the wall, as Jesus prayed With his father. These disciples heard him. And notice what it prompted them to ask. It says, when he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. As they listened to Jesus pray, they're prompted to ask, Lord, teach us. There's a part that rises up, at least in one of them, potentially more, that says, I want to pray like that. I want to know how to address the Father. I want to know how to have that kind of communion, that kind of intimacy, that kind of power and delight. Lord, teach us to pray, they ask. It was not uncommon for rabbis to teach their disciples how to pray. Even a form of prayer. As they reveal here, John the Baptist had taught his disciples how to pray in some form or fashion. And now Jesus' disciples were asking something similar. Friends, we can be reminded here, even in this simple request, that you and I can ask this very same question of our Lord and Savior. We don't know how to pray as we ought. We're looking to learn from his word, but friends, you can drop to your knees and ask the Lord himself, Lord, teach me to pray. Lord, help me to pray. Help me to be a better prayer. Help me to pray more consistently with your will. Help me to have the right heart posture in prayer. And our Lord is truly our Lord and our teacher, and he wants to teach us, his disciples, how to pray. Well, in response to this request, verse 2 tells us that Jesus replied by giving them a prayer to follow. This prayer is infamously known as the Lord's Prayer, because it's a prayer formed the Lord gave. But as has been noted by many others, it really should be called the Disciples' Prayer. It's a prayer given by the Lord to His disciples, a prayer that the disciples should pray on and follow. Now, people generally were more familiar with Matthew's version of this prayer, Matthew chapter 6, it's a longer version of this prayer. Luke's is abbreviated, and even the form found in many modern translations compared to the King James Version is even abbreviated from the King James because of a better manuscript tradition, recognizing that what Luke recorded here was not as full as what Matthew recorded, and yet it's still powerfully packed. And so what we can see is that, you know, the, the Matthew chapter 6 is in the context of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus, on that occasion, as he taught up upon the mountain, he instructed his disciples how to pray. Here seems to be potentially a different occasion. And yet he taught very similarly how they are to pray. Jesus teaching s- similar things on different occasions. Notice the beginning of Jesus' response. Look at it, verse 2. He says... And when you pray, say. He doesn't even give them a command to pray. He doesn't give them instruction to pray, even though we are commanded in many other places to pray. Here, it's simply assuming that we're praying, when you pray. And, of course, for first-century Jewish people, they did pray. It was part of their society, much less part of their own faith. There were lots of prayers that they would follow, and so it's right for them to assume when you pray. Now, I don't believe that Jesus meant for these words to, that they had to be repeated verbatim, that he wanted his followers to simply repeat these words in a formulaic sort of way. Now, it's not wrong for believers to repeat these words exactly as they're given. In fact, we can, we can repeat biblical words from all sorts of prayers all over the Bible and find great benefit in that. But the danger of simply repeating something verbatim over and over again is that we may not give the right kind of thought to it, and then we, re- we borrow the words, but we don't borrow the heart. That our lips follow the Lord, but our hearts don't. I think what Jesus meant to give his disciples here was, a, was different categories of requests. There's different groupings, different categories that we should be including in our prayers, and he gives us these requests here to remind us of and to teach us what those are. And so here in verses 2 through 4, Jesus gives us the content of our prayers. If we want our prayers to be biblical, then they must follow Jesus' instruction here. And so let's look at the prayer that Jesus gives us. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Come. He begins by addressing God as Father. Did you catch that? He doesn't say God. He doesn't say the Lord. He says Father. Now even though the Old Testament has examples in which God is is spoken of as Father, there are no examples of God being directly addressed as a Father. And so it seems that Jesus' practice here is unique. He's instructing his disciples, to simply do what he himself does and what he himself did, right? Jesus prayed to the Father by calling him Father. And there's many examples throughout the Gospels, but the Gospel of Luke has many of them himself. We saw in chapter 10 how Jesus prayed. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed to them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus called God his Father, and now he exhorts his disciples to do the same. As we go through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we'll see Jesus address God as Father, particularly as it gets near the cross. Luke records several key prayers of Jesus that are, that are, are sweet for us as the church down through the ages. Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father, if you are willing, he says. Luke 23, verse 34 on the cross. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And finally, Luke 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus prayed to the Father, and now he's exhorting his disciples to do the very same thing. But the question we need to ask ourselves is how can disciples address God in the same way as Jesus? We can understand theologically how Jesus can address God as Father because he's the Son, as, he has revealed, as Jesus made clear. He is the Son. His Father is in heaven. But how can Jesus invite us to address God Almighty as Father in the same way as Him. Because, friends, we know that we're not naturally on good terms with the Lord. Naturally, left to ourselves, we're enemies of God, are we not? We're sinners deep down. We are sinners from our conception. There are none righteous. No, not one, the Apostle Paul reminds us. There are none who seek after God. We have no ounce of righteousness with which we can pull out of our pockets and show God and for him to be proud of us. The only thing that we have in our possession to put on the table for the Lord is our heinous sin. And so how is it that we, as such enemies of God, that are deserving of his wrath, can have the audacity to call him father. And this is where we must remind ourselves of the gospel. The gospel that is in some senses, still in play here in the gospel of Luke. As Jesus lived his life here, he was on the trajectory towards the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection. But we now on the other side of the cross understand that it is only through the work of Jesus, friends, that we can address God as Father. John chapter 1, the apostle there reminds us, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, friends, for us to be able to call God Father means that we are His children. And yes, there is a sense, a certain generic sense, that all people upon this planet have been created by God, and therefore, you could say, are God's children. But the problem with that is that it confuses the spiritual language of the Bible, which designates those who are His children are those who have been regenerated by the Spirit. Notice that those who are born, not of blood, but of, or of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God... Those who have been born of God by His Spirit can rightly be called the children of God. They are the ones who have been given the right. Those who have trusted in Jesus are called the children of God. All people are the creations of God, but only those who have trusted in Jesus and been regenerated are called children of God. Galatians chapter 4 helps to highlight the work of the triune God in our lives to enable us to be able to address God as Father. The Apostle Paul says, when, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Friends, do you notice The work of the three Persons of the Trinity here. God the Father sent forth His Son to redeem those who were under the law. As we know, is the work of His death, burial, and resurrection. His sacrifice upon the cross. His bearing the wrath on our behalf. The curse of the law fell upon Him so that we might be counted blameless before the eyes of God. We are justified in his sight, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We've been invited in, not as second-class citizens, but as adoption as sons, friends. We are joint heirs with Christ. This is amazing. But the Spirit's not missing out on this action. He's also participating, and it says that God did a second sending. He sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, so that we can cry, Abba, Father. Friends, the fact that you and I can call God Father, it took heaven to come to earth to make that happen. It took the work of the Almighty God, all three persons of the Trinity working in concert with one united will to accomplish our redemption so that you can close your eyes, fold your hands and bow your head and say, Father, it's... That is the gospel background that is always there every time we cry out, Father in heaven. It's such a privilege that we cannot lose sight of this great reality. You know, there's an old Roman story that helps to illustrate this privilege that we have to address God as Father The story goes that a Roman emperor had come back to Rome after a victory, and he came in triumph, marching his troops through the streets, along with the prisoners that he had taken captive. The streets were lined with cheering people, praising him for his great accomplishments. And at one spot along this victory route, there was a platform where His wife, the Empress, and her family were sitting to watch the Emperor go by and to hear all the acclaim that he was receiving. On that platform, with his mother, was a wee lad, the Emperor's youngest son. As the Emperor's chariot came near, the little fellow jumped off the platform, wriggled through the crowd, and tried to dart between the legs of the soldiers who were guarding the streets and run out to greet his father's chariot. The soldier stooped down and scooped up the boy in his arms. You can't do that, boy, he said, and added, don't you know who that is in the chariot? That's the emperor. You can't run out to his chariot. But the lad laughed in his face as only a little boy can. He says, you, he may be your emperor, he was retort, but he is my father. He knew that he had access to that man out in the chariot because that was his father. And friends, we can't miss the wonder and the privilege that we can run to the Father as well. We have intimacy and access with Him, and so we cannot lose the treasure, lose sight of the treasure that that is. And so, after the address of God as Father, Jesus then gives us several petitions. To help us to know how to pray. The first couple are vertical in their orientation. The next few are horizontal. And I've categorized them under four headings for us this morning. And the first category of petitions is for God's preeminence. For God's preeminence. Jesus begins his class by pointing his disciples heavenward. He instructs us to begin our prayers by setting our minds upon God himself. He says, pray... Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is an old term that means to sanctify or to make holy or to set apart. The verb is passive, which means that we're asking God to do this for his own name's sake. God, please do this for yourself. Please do this for your name. And I agree with commentator Dale, Ralph Davies who, who sees behind this request Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. I invite you to turn there with me. Ezekiel chapter 36. You'll find on the Pew Bible on page 859. Ezekiel, a prophet who wrote while Israel was in exile, in their disobedience... They had been sent uh, to other nations. And so here in Ezekiel 36, there's a little bit of a review of what happened with the nation of Israel and what God plans to do in light of Israel's disobedience. Look in verse 16, Ezekiel 36, it says, "'The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds.' Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them, for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that, people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. And I, but I had a concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Here in these verses, 16 to 21, we see that Israel had profaned the name of the Lord. His name was not being treasured. His name was not being upheld as holy. It was being profaned. And because of their disobedience, they were sent to these other nations. But as they were sent to these nations, it put God, in in a sense, in a PR problem. The other nations go, wait, this is, these are the people of Yahweh? These are the people of the Lord? He couldn't even keep them in their own land. What kind of God is this? Is he not mighty enough? But God is reminding his people here that he has a concern for his own name and that he is able to act in order to vindicate, in order to sanctify, in order to hallow his own name. Look now in verses 22 and 23. And this, these two verses are the key background for Jesus's request that he gives us in Luke 11, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God is going to reverse the profaning of his name. He is going to take it upon himself. He is going to vindicate his own name. He is going to see that his name is vindicated and hallowed. And here we see that Israel is at the center of his plan to vindicate his own name. And when this happens, Israel will be regenerated. Israel will be changed. Look at how he goes on in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you Verse 25, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and I will, a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your, your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. When God goes about this work of vindicating his name and setting, setting his, his name is holy israel will be regenerated israel will be brought into the land and so as we are then back in luke 11 jesus is exhorting his disciples to pray father hallowed be your name god may your name be held sacred or holy he's saying that we should be praying that God would bring about the end time vindication of his name that he promised in Ezekiel 36. God, may that great display of your vindication of your name that you're going to work through the nation of Israel when you regenerate them and when you set them in their land, may that come, may that happen, may you do it for your name's sake. And we know through the story of the Bible that when God chooses to bless the nation of Israel, all the other nations of the earth gain from that. The Abrahamic covenant, God promised to Abraham, I will bless you and through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When Israel's is blessed, the nations of the world are blessed. And so it means that we want this end times uh, restoration of Israel to happen because when that happens we all benefit this is what Paul stated exactly in Romans chapter 11 verse 12 he says now if they meaning the Jewish people if the Jewish people's trespass means riches for the world i.e. the rejection of Jesus meant our salvation and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles how much more will their full inclusion mean when this happens to Israel and they're regenerated and they're brought back into land, there's huge gain and benefit for us. And so as we long and pray that God's holiness would be vindicated, that his name would be treasured among the nations, that would be treated as holy, we're causing our hearts to grow in a desire to see him treasured, to see him delighted in. And that of wets our appetite for today. If we're praying that God's name be vindicated in a future day, it means we want to see his name vindicated in our lives today as well. In other words, this isn't just a pipe dream. It isn't just praying for something for the future. It has present effects as well. Because we, when we pray this prayer, we then want to see God's name hallowed and treasured in our lives and in our churches and in our world. We don't want to see his name used flippantly. We're grieved to see people who, who use the name worship to, to describe all sorts of things that they that they create. We're grieved to hear people use his name in vain. We're grieved by his name being profaned, as professing Christians and sometimes even pastors live in sin and immorality. God's name being profaned should grieve us deeply, and our desires that his name be honored and set apart as holy that he ultimately vindicates it in the end. And so we need to pray that God would bring this about. His second petition that Jesus gives us here confirms this, what we talked about from Ezekiel 36. He says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This is all that end times reality that his kingdom is not here, but his kingdom will come. God, bring it to this earth. May your reign and rule be, be manifested here. It's when Jesus comes again in his glory that then he will sit upon his glorious throne and he'll invite his people to enter into the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world, as Matthew 25 says. So the establishment of the kingdom is future, but we pray that it would come. That the king would come and destroy his enemies, that he will reign in righteousness, and that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as water covers the seas. And so we pray now that God's name would be hallowed and we seek to live lives Consistent with that. So we first pray for God's preeminence. The second category of petitions that Jesus gives us is we pray for God's provision. We pray for God's provision. Look at verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. Obviously in ancient times, they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have other means of preserving food. And so the reality of acquiring food every day was a daily necessity. And so Jesus teaches them to pray, give us Each day, our daily bread. This harkens back to the Exodus when the nation of Israel was sent out of Egypt and then they were in the wilderness. And what did they have to do? They had to look to the Lord for their daily bread, for their manna that would show up on the ground. And they couldn't collect a whole week's worth, right? They had to only collect a day's worth. If they collected too much that lasted to the next day, it would rot and be full of worms. God wanted to teach them a valuable lesson that we ourselves need to learn. And Jesus is trying to teach us here is that we rely upon the Lord for daily necessities. Friends, we live in a a proud and arrogant age with much innovation, and we can thank God for it. But we cannot allow the great innovation that enables us to have stores stocked with food, refrigerators and freezers full of food, pantries full of food, to allow us to become arrogant and self-reliant in such a way that we neglect the reality that we are dependent upon God every single day. This, can, this idea of self-sufficiency can show up in so many different ways. Just the reality of the wealth that we have. We forget that we have to depend on God because we pull the money out of our pocket and spend it and get what we need. It can also come from a practical atheism. We kind of don't connect God Almighty with our everyday transactions, our everyday realities that as we are purchasing those, those, that, food, that food at the store, this is God providing for our needs. I think this idea of self-sufficiency can also happen with those who are in this uh, prepper mentality. Be self-sufficient. Don't depend on anybody. I can handle it all myself. But friends, we depend upon God every day for our necessities. I think this reference to food, daily bread, doesn't just apply to food, but applies to all of our daily necessities. This could be our, uh, our medical care. This could be our housing, our clothing, our transportation. And isn't it true when those things are threatened, when we really need medical care, when we really need housing, that we recognize that it is God who provides these things. And he's the one that we ask for them from, and he's the one that we thank when they, when they come our way. And this is why we pray before meals. We thank God for the provision of each and every meal that we have. God, give us this day our daily bread. Provide for our daily needs. And so I ask you, do you have a humble mindset of depending upon God every day? Or are there ways in which you've allowed this modern mindset of self-sufficiency to creep in and to affect the way that you view your necessities in life? We are not self-sufficient, we need the Lord, and he has promised to supply our every need. As Paul says in Philippians four nineteen. my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Because of Christ, God loves to bless us. We only need to ask and to pray, and God delights to give. So we pray for God's preeminence, for his provision. Thirdly, we pray for God's pardon. We pray for God's pardon. As Jesus instructs us in verse 4, first part of four. Here Jesus turns from physical needs to spiritual needs. Jesus wants us to attend not only to our souls, not only to our stomachs rather, but to our souls as well. And so the most pressing need that we have spiritually is for the forgiveness of our sins. And so Jesus teaches us to pray that God would forgive us. The bishop of the 19th century, J.C. Ryle said this upon this request. He says that when we ask God to forgive us of our sins, we confess that we are fallen, guilty, and corrupt creatures, and in many things offend daily. We make no excuse for ourselves. We plead nothing in our behalf. We simply ask for the free, full, gracious mercy of our Father in Christ Jesus. Friends, to to, to say to God, forgive us our sins, we are confessing that indeed we have sins. And so Jesus is teaching us that we need to make it our daily habit to go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. But you might ask, why do I need to ask for forgiveness? I thought I already asked for forgiveness, and God granted it when I was saved. Yes, that's true. When we first believed, our sins were forgiven. You no doubt know the picture of the pilgrim's progress. And Christian who climbs the hill of Calvary and comes to the cross, and that burden is lifted, and and it falls off his back, and it rolls down the hill. Friends, that's true of every believer. We come to the cross and our sins are forgiven. The burden is taken away. We are justified by faith in Christ. We do not have to do anything else to earn our salvation. Forgiveness is complete. He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103 says. But when we sin, it affects our relationship with God. You could say that that forgiveness that we receive at the cross is our positional forgiveness that that it's eternal that we're forever secured in Christ but there's a relational forgiveness that's needed and we know this with our own children do we not that our children we love dearly and they can sin in great ways that affect our relationship and so even though their position as our children as our loved children is not going to be shaken we still need to make the relationship right when sin comes between us. And the same is true with our relationship with God. We can't just bank upon our position in Christ and neglect the reality of sin in our lives on a daily basis. And so Jesus exhorts us here that we need to be going to God, asking for God to forgive us. Forgive us our sins, we're to pray. Confession is agreeing with God with our sin, saying, yes, God, that is a sin. I did sin in that way. And even though we ask for forgiveness, we don't stand in doubt whether he's going to forgive. It's not we're standing there going, okay, God, are you going to forgive this time? I'm sorry. No, we know he's going to forgive right away. He loves to forgive. In fact, Spurgeon said that, that Christ is more ready to forgive than we are ready to sin. We don't understand the forgiving heart of God if we doubt that at all. Martin Luther, his, the first of his 95 theses that he posted on the Wittenberg door was that the Christian life is one of continual repentance. We never graduate out of the class of repentance. We always need to be confessing our sin before the Lord. Recognize that this sin is in our lives and we confess it before the Father. 1 John 1.9 gives us the promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness he does this, how can God forgive us? How can he forgive us so many times? It's because of the gospel again. It's because of the work of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 says that in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's because of the blood of Christ that, that we find forgiveness. And so, believer, you can go to your Heavenly Father every single day and ask for forgiveness for your sins and know that you will find forgiveness every single time because Jesus paid the penalty with his blood. If we lose sight of this, if we shrink away from God because of our guilt, then we're doubting the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. We don't think it's enough. And I know we don't want to say that, so... Let's live out of the reality that we know his sacrifice is sufficient and go boldly confessing our sin, knowing that we'll receive forgiveness. Now, the second half of this request says, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And this has tripped up Christians thinking that, wait, it sounds like we're asking God to forgive based upon the forgiveness that we give. In other words, hey, God, we've forgiven first, so can't you follow us in the good deed that we've done and forgive just as we've forgiven? But of course you know this isn't right. God is the ultimate first cause. God is the one who does the right thing first. We simply follow in his steps. I believe what Jesus is teaching here is that we dare not go to God asking for forgiveness if we ourselves have not given forgiveness to somebody else. In other words praying this petition causes us to check our hearts and go have I forgiven everyone who's indebted to me? Have I actually lived a life of forgiveness to those around me so that I can then also ask for forgiveness from God? We don't have time to look at it this morning, but write down Matthew 18. Jesus tells a powerful story, right? Of a servant of a king who has received much forgiveness from the king, but he himself doesn't extend forgiveness to others and he's sent, in the parable, is, is sent to hell because of his disobedience. Friends, there's serious significance that we cannot neglect forgiveness in our lives to other people. If we're asking for forgiveness from God, we must also give forgiveness to people around us, is the point. But fourthly and finally this morning, we pray for God's protection. We pray for his preeminence, his provision, his pardon, and finally his protection, God's protection. The final request that Jesus gives us here is, and lead us not into temptation, temptation. This is one of guidance, one of guarding. Coming off the request for forgiveness, we've just been reflecting upon our past sins. Forgive us our sins, Lord. We, I know I've sinned in great ways. But now as we end our prayer, we think about stepping out into our day and into our week and we say, I, I don't want to sin again. I don't want to have to, have to uh, commit something that would cause me to ask for forgiveness again. And even though we know we're not perfect and we will sin again, our desire and our request here is that God would keep us from sin. Our minds now orient towards future obedience. And so it's, in essence, we're saying, Father, I'm grieved over the sins I've committed and I don't want to commit new ones. So please keep me from sinning. Please keep me from walking into temptations that I might fall into. Now this request is not because Jesus or the Father tempts. That's a very important point. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, "Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God; for get this, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one." James 13. God tempts no one with evil. It says the Puritan Thomas Watson said, "He permits sin, but he does not promote it. He who is an encourager of holiness cannot be a pattern of sin. What king will tempt his subjects to break laws which he himself has established?" The Father's not going to tempt. He never does that. So in this request, what is he saying? We are asking God to help us to not be overcome by temptation. That we may not be given up to the power of temptation and be drawn into sin. We know that temptations come from within us, our own sinful flesh. We know that temptations come from external from us, through Satan and his demons. Matthew 4, 3, Satan is called the tempter. And he's diligent, he's unrelenting, he's malicious in his tempting, seeking to tear us down. Friends, this request, as we pray this, it comes out of a heart that is sensitive to sin. It's sensitive to God's honor, to God's holy name, that we don't want to profane his name with our lives. And so we say, God, please keep me from sin. Please lead us not in temptation. Please keep me from falling into sin. We want to be sensitive to our next steps. We don't want to find ourselves being in a place where we're dishonoring Christ. And so we ask that the Father would please keep us from that sin. Friends, we cannot stand in our own strength. That's why Jesus instructs us here to pray this. We can't step out in obedience to Christ and go, all right, I got you, God. I'm not gonna sin again. No, this prayer by by our Lord teaches us that we need God's help to live lives that bring glory to God. We need his help every step of the way, which is why Paul exhorted the, us in Ephesians 6 to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might To put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. As friends, I ask you, is this your heart? Is this your request throughout the day, throughout the week? Oh God, man, not sin. Please keep me from sin today. Please so fill me with your spirit that I might be submitted to your will, that I might live lives that, that is submissive to Christ, that I may not stumble into sin. I know that I don't pray this enough, that God would keep me from sin. You need to be sensitive to that. And so in this prayer, we have much that Christ has given us. Next week, we'll look at the two remaining qualities that are to be in our prayer, but already we've been chastened and instructed, haven't we? We've sensed our need for the Lord and our dependence upon him. May God lead us in this prayer as we come to him. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the privilege that we have to address you. We thank you for this example of prayer that Jesus, our Lord, has given to us. And we ask that you would please teach us now in this day that we would seek to follow you in all things and that you would please lead us to pray in a way that glorifies and honors you father we want to live lives that glorify you and want to pray in such a way that glorifies you and so we ask that you would please help us we don't pray as we ought but we thank you that you've given your spirit to assist us in our prayers that our prayers might be biblical in aligning with your will And when we see that take place in our heart, desiring more of your honor, we'll give you all the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.